Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Yeah, good evening. It's about 20 till, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Mark is on his way back home today, and we'll get back into Joplin sometime tonight, uh, flying back from Japan. I haven't heard anything, and that's good news when you're an elder, so that's really nice. So he's been talking with Brad, and um, don't, I don't like to uh, just keep him busy while he's traveling. So uh, we'll pray for Mark again tonight, um, that he will have a safe trip on his way back home. And uh, we're going to dive into a couple of books that are really favorites of mine as we take a look at um, God answering questions for us and again some more about the transformation process. Um, In your handout we're going to be finishing up Acts. We're going to take a bird's eye view of Romans and we're going to be taking a look at Galatians. And tonight I want you to um, ask God to teach you something that you can use this week. Um, I'd like for him to be our primary teacher, and tonight when we open up in prayer, um, I would like for him to be able to direct your attention and your heart onto one of these points that is going to be meaningful for you, that will nourish you and strengthen you and help you to move forward. So not only will you get good information that you can take and um, study further, but you would also be able to devotionally connect with him tonight in this study. So let's ask God's blessing on our time and for Mark while he travels home, Mark and Matt, and we'll jump into this. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunities that we have in order to be close to you, in order to study your word and to see what is important to you. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have given us the written word that is able to direct us and teach us and comfort us and draw us to you. And tonight we ask for the same thing, that you would take each one of us and teach us something about yourself, that you would help for us to see you more clearly, that we would be able to see how you handle the church and how you direct the church in difficult times when we take a look at Acts how you intend to instruct us and help for us to understand your purposes and your ways through Romans and Galatians. And Lord, we um, are grateful that we can study together as a family. So we invite you to be our teacher tonight and ask that you would proclaim a truth to us and draw us to you as we study. We also pray that you'll continue to bless Mark and Matt as they make their way back home that they would be rested, that they would be healthy, that you would help for them to process what they have experienced. And uh, when Mark takes the stage on Sunday, Lord, we ask that you would fill him to overflowing with his sermon, but also, Lord, with information and knowledge or something to share about his experience. Uh, We are so grateful for Mark and his leadership here and ask for you to continue to bless him and bless us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, In the upper corner, upper uh, left-hand corner or so of your um, sheet, if you would jot down two chapters, Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5. Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5. We have a lot of material to go through tonight, and I kind of hate that because those are two of my all-time favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And we're going to be kind of stepping over them, but I want to tell you a little bit about them. Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 5. Last week I told you that the transformation that God wants for us to have is Holy Spirit language. 
And outside of John, you will have in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5, the richest passages of scripture about what God intends to do in us through his presence. And there's some things about Romans chapter 8 that I just want to bring to your attention that you might want to jot down that I think are really pretty exciting that I have used in my own personal life. And Romans chapter 8 verse 11 is the first verse that I want to stop on with you. If you're like me, you can get overwhelmed in the sheer volume of things that you have to do emotionally and physically. And you can go through the world and you can be affected by how the world seems to be on fire right now. Um, It is troubling. It is difficult sometimes for us to think how in the world could we be in such a mess in a fallen world. And we can end up being discouraged or frustrated from the task at hand of being the light where we are. Um, being a light for our children, doing the right kinds of things. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says something very striking that I want to bring to you devotionally tonight as we get started. He says, if the spirit of him, that is the Holy Spirit, of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So let me give you that Peter Buckland thing. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, God is giving you life. And he's going to give you life in order to accomplish what he has ordained for you to do. So I want to take you to the concept of manna. Manna. That is that God will give you what you need to get you through your situation, but he might not give you more than that. Just think about that for a moment. He'll give you what you need to get through the immediate situation or maybe even the day, but he won't necessarily give you more than that. And you might ask yourself, well, why won't he give me everything that I need all the time? Well, the reason is, is that we will tend to move away from our interactive relationship with him if he blesses us too much. I know that sounds really odd, but that's what happened in the Old Testament also, where God said, you're going you're to take over land, that land is going to be flowing with milk and honey. Watch out, because you're going to think that you don't need me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be so immensely pleasurable for you, and so exciting for you, that you will forget that you need me. And if you look through the Old Testament, like Judges, you can see how the nation of Israel got close to God and then moved away from him and God needed to send people to remind them that they needed to be close to him. That same process lives in us today. And so what I want for you to think about when you look at this passage devotionally is this. God has called you to be like Christ. And that is something that you will run out of energy to do, which we talked a little bit last week. And what will happen is, is that you could be discouraged or feel frustrated that you can't do what God wants you to do. And it's at that moment that he has you right where he wants you. He's going to take you to the end of yourself. And then he's going to show you what real life is all about. But he has to take you to the end of yourself so you can live a spirit-empowered life. So when you look at your week and you look at your family and you look at your tasks, what you have to do is develop what Galatians chapter chapter 5 calls walking in the spirit. And Galatians 5, wedded with this passage, is really pretty tremendous. And what you have to do is know how to walk through your day in humility, in repentance, and in asking for God to give you what you need to obey him in this moment and have the courage to act on his behalf because you're gonna just plain old run out of energy. 
He's going to take you to the end of yourself, and then he's going to give you what you need. So if you want to live on the edge of your faith, you have to scare yourself. You have to put yourself in the hands of God to say, you've called me to talk to people. You've called me to discipline my children. You've called me to a life that is bigger than what I can understand. And I need you in this moment to give me what I need. And in that moment, he will help you. But he will create another moment later that day or create another moment later that week where you'll come to the end of yourself and you'll say, I don't really know how I should respond. And Acts is all about that. In fact, when we open this up, what what I want for you to see is that the early church gets itself into mess after mess after mess after mess after mess. And what they do is they pray and they pray and they pray and they pray and they act and they act and they act and they act and they turn the entire world upside down. How can a little rabble-rousing group of apostles infect the world in such an amazing way? They did it because God was able to meet them in their moments at the end of themselves, to have the courage to speak, the courage to act, the courage to pray, the courage to be. And as a result, people looked at them and said, there's got to be something here because you should not be able to do this. I teach at Ozark Christian College, and one of the things that I love is April because in April, anyone that's messed up and hasn't done all of their work is behind, and they're not sleeping well, and they're really, really frustrated, and they're motivated to ask for God to help them because they've come to the end of themselves. If you know anything about college students, they are the most energetic than they have ever been in their entire life. They believe that they can do whatever they want to do and they can somehow just keep on going. And what happens is, is by April, by having to work and having to study and having to live their social life, they often run out of energy themselves. And I wait for April. April's coming. You can pray for us. And in April, I asked them to run an experiment. And it's an experiment of praying through their day. Now, you and I get there a lot faster than college students do. All you have to do is get married or have kids or have a full-time job or get older. And then you kind of come to yourself faster, come to the end of yourself faster. And it's at that moment that God is going to help you. So the Holy Spirit passages that I want for you to think about and I want you to ask yourself about tonight is, when I come to the end of myself, what do I do? And whatever you do repetitively will become your second nature. And God said, I'll give you manna. I'll give you quail. You live in a wilderness area. That is, you live in an area that runs out of resources and supplies. And I'll give you what you need. In Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5, wedded together, talk about that process. And we get to just kind of scratch the surface just a little bit on that. Before we get there, um, open up um, in your... um, handout, if you would, and I want to give you what is special about Acts chapter 13 through 20, and I want to talk to you about how the church prayed and acted and prayed and acted as we take a look at taking the gospel to all of the nations. And the first blank is Paul's missionary strategy. Paul's missionary strategy. Now, I want to do a little bit of allegory for you today as we go through this, and I want you to think about what is your missionary strategy, One of the great pillars of our responsibility is the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, where we actually get to continue Jesus' ministry on earth. 
We get to proclaim the gospel. We get to bring people to see him and to interact with him and to obey him and get to be blessed by him. And the Great Commission is actually us picking up in physical in the physical world where Jesus has left off, which is really pretty exciting. But my question for you is what is your strategy to do that? How do you want to take the Great Commission and make it sing or come alive for the people that you are with? Because you will stand in a Walmart line where there's an individual who's going really slow. You will drive down a, an a Joplin Street, and somebody will cut in front of you. Um, you will have something happen that will surprise you, and you will come to the end of yourself. And if you don't think in advance about some ways that you would like to handle things, you could be caught off guard. What Paul said was, I've got a strategy of making the gospel sing in the world, making the gospel come alive in the world. And his strategy, as you take a look at this, was to first go to the Jews in the synagogue, to the people who should have been the most open and be able to express to them what the gospel was all about. And so you can see the cities that Paul and his team visited. And he was very deliberate about going to a population center to get the most bang for his buck. And he thought, okay, where can I go that's really going to make a difference that if it catches on here, it will just kind of spread on out. So one of my questions for you is, what environment could you be in? What relationships do you have that as you're rubbing up against them, if that person catches the gospel or gets excited or enthusiastic about Christ in you, how could the gospel really spread? You all have relationships. You all have contacts. And who are you, if I could say this, kind of cozying up next to in order to continue the ministry of Jesus to offer, if you will, the hospitality of God? Don't you want to believe? Don't you want to see what this is like? Do you see what has happened in my life? The authenticity of your life, the way you live your life, makes other people interested. And so one of the things I want you to pray about is what's your strategy? Number one, your strategy should be obedience. Lord, keep teaching me what I need to know. Obedience. The second thing is help me to have the courage to know when to speak or when to act. So you have obedience. Keep teaching me what I need to know. And the second is help me to have the courage to speak when I need to speak and to act when I need to act. You know, sometimes Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't beat me. At other times, he didn't say that at all. He was working with the Spirit to try to figure out how do I step up verbally or how do I step up with my actions? And you and I are caught in the same dilemma. What is your strategy? Your strategy is to pray through your day to ask God, when do I speak and when do I just serve and act? Because I need both of those that are going on. And the third thing that I would have you pray for is, Lord, teach me how to be wholly devoted to you so that I can take the moment when you give it to me. Wholly devoted to you so I can take the moment when you give it to me. You always strike while the iron's hot, right? You all have kids. Sometimes you want to discipline them and they're not ready. And when they're not ready, they're really tough and hard. And some of you have employees that aren't ready to hear what you have to say. You have to tell them anyway, but until they figure out that they need to learn it, they're not really interested in. And you must have the Spirit's wisdom at times to strike while the iron is hot. So let me tell you a little bit about the potter's wheel here. Because we are the clay and God is the potter. And between obedience and in, in praying to know when to speak up or when to act and to be wholly devoted to God, you have put yourself on his potter's wheel. And the potter will take the clay and smash it 
and lift it and smash it and lift it and smash it and lift it. And what the potter is doing is aligning the molecules of the clay so that when the potter actually just starts picking it up, he can with one finger create the pot that he wants because the clay is responsive. But the clay, us, we have to stay on the potter's wheel. The strategy is to stay on the wheel and to let God tell us when we need to do something, when to grow and when to develop. So the obedience keeps me on the potter's wheel. The speaking or the acting helps me to interact with people in ways that are meaningful for them. And my own devotion means that I must be connected to God to see his plan or I might creep off that potter's wheel. In Romans chapter 12, verse one, it calls us living sacrifices. And you know the problem with the living sacrifice, of course, is it always wants to crawl off the altar. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tired of being a piece of clay. Sometimes I get tired of being asked to do things. And if I'm not sold out to God's plan for my life, I might just say, no, I don't want to do that. What's your strategy? How do you want to make a difference in the world? Paul said, I'm going to go to a population center and I'm going to do something amazing. Most of us will stay here and do something pretty incredible. So ask him to lead you in that. Uh, Number two, the Jerusalem Council of 49 AD is the next big thing in Acts chapter 15. Now, wherever the church goes, there is a pushback from people. And one of the things that I want you to think about is your own pushback. Because when I hear Mark preach and I hear him say something and my spirit goes, "Mm," that lets me know that Mark and the word of God has maybe stepped on my toes. It's catching my attention. And quite frankly, I want that. In fact, I encourage him, please, just give it to us straight. We're the kind of church that needs that. Um, When Mark was interviewing for our job, he tried to convince us not to hire him. Because he said, I'm just going to kind of give it to you guys straight. I said, well, we're that kind of a church. He said, well, some churches don't like that. No, no, we won't like you if you don't give it to us straight. We need it straight because there's so many voices out there that are more than happy to tell us what we want to hear. What we need to hear is the voice of God. You need to study it. You need to interact with it. And you need to present it in such a way that we can hear God. And when we hear God, what will happen is that there will be an impact in your life. Wherever the gospel goes, there is a result. And in Jerusalem in this time, the Judaizers came up and they said, you can't be a real Christian unless you become a Jew first. Now, I want to challenge you with something. I'm not, I don't really know exactly how to open all of this up. But whenever anybody says to you, you can't be a real Christian unless, I want you to really pay attention to that because that's what Acts chapter 15 was all about. And the big theme that we're looking at tonight is faith in Jesus creates for us the new experience in Christ. And the centerpiece is you can't be a Christian if you don't have faith in Jesus. And that's the centerpiece the centerpiece of everything that we do. And what these guys are saying is, no, no, now you have to be circumcised. Now you have to keep the Jewish holidays. You have to become a Jew first, and then you can become a a Christian second. We convert you to Judaism, and then you move on to become a real Christian. So one of the things that I want you to ask, and and I I think this is beautiful about Christchurch Vornogo, is we have people that have faith backgrounds in a lot of different kinds of denominational backgrounds. And I think it's a beautiful picture of unity. And I'm not... I didn't even grow up in this kind of a church either. I came from a different one. And what I think about is, God, would you please keep teaching me about what it means, if I could use our terminology, what it means to be a real Christian. And don't let me set back. 
and just sort of assume that I know, but keep teaching me so that I can live on the edge of my faith. And when we're looking at this Jerusalem council, that's really what the apostles were having to figure out for everybody is what really allows for you to be a Christian and what are some of the add-ons. When you take a look at number three um, on here, the challenge, let me grab this. I'm sorry, yes. The Jerusalem Council of 40 AD. Sorry, I didn't say that more than once. The Jerusalem Council of 49 AD. 49 AD. Jerusalem Council of 49 AD. Salvation was not linked to keeping the law, but salvation was in Jesus alone. Three, the challenges of missionary life. The challenges of missionary life. I'm sorry, Paul is going out and he is wanting to spread out the gospel. He's taking this faith in Jesus alone and he's facing the Jewish nation that's thinking God is just changing all of this on us and he's moving out into the Gentiles who think Paul is ridiculous. In fact, Acts is a lot about that. If your neighbors think you're ridiculous or people at work think you're ridiculous, you're in good company because all the way from the very beginning people are looking at this going, it can't be that easy. It can't be. There have to be add-ons and there have to be changes. In fact, the entire book of Colossians, which we're not looking at tonight, was Jesus plus something else. It can't just be Jesus alone. And there's an entire epistle about how it is just Jesus alone. That having this relationship with God is what God intended to restore back to us. And what I want for you to think about, it's like Adam and Eve all over again, where God is coming to us and he's saying, I really want to walk with you. I really want to interact with you. I want to get rid of what hinders us and have this relationship. And Paul took that and he said, look, the Jerusalem Council said that really this is what we're going to focus in on because this is the core. And now I'm going to go out and I'm going to have this experience with you. And when you look at this, you can see that in reading through um, Acts and in this passage in 2 Corinthians that Paul ended up being horribly persecuted. So let me tell you something about the potter's wheel again. God will smash the clay, and sometimes the world will smash the clay. So if you ever feel smashed, the question that you ask is, God, what can you teach me about this experience? What can you teach me about this experience? Because when we are put under pressure and we are smashed, God is still going to work in us and lift us back up again. So when you're dealing with a hard situation, and what you'll see with Paul over and over again, he was pressed down, and he was whipped, and he was shipwrecked, and he was smashed, and he is, by everyone's account, hands down, one of the most important historical figures ever, because he kept being raised up by God. He kept moving forward. He kept on growing. Now, I don't ask for trials. I don't know about you. I don't think they're very fun. I don't like that. I, I just look at them and go, okay, Lord, if you're going to put me through another one of these, then you have to help me to deal with this. And a trial could be as simple as my impatience, or it could be as big as an adversary. But it is a trial, and I feel it. And instead of getting angry, I have the kind of personality that wants to use power in order to solve problems. I'm not um, a person who necessarily thinks of peace and being calm, first of all. That's my wife, and opposites attract. So we've had a wonderful time with power and peace in our relationship. Um, Because I want to solve everything by telling everybody what to do. And that's not always the best response. And when I stop, remember, walk by faith, get manna. What does God want to teach you today? Is this, when I'm smashed down like Paul, 
living out the missionary life, if you will, going out into the world to take the gospel, the question is, Lord, what do you want me to learn about you? And how can I be like Christ in this situation? And I can tell you that I haven't always asked those questions because it's easier for me to be like Peter, me, than it is to be like Jesus, him. And so think of the potter's wheel. And when you get pushed down, God is going to bring you back up. He is going to nourish you. He is going to help you. And he isn't always going to tell you why you're getting pressed down. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he's, he knows the reason, but he's not talking. And sometimes he doesn't say anything at all. He just says, trust me. So let me just deviate for a moment. How do you learn trust in God? You learn trust in God when he sees you through a crushing moment. You don't learn trust in God when everything is fine and good. You learn that God loves you and he cares about you when we are distressed and he meets our need. And he grows in us and he helps us to learn about him. And in the very end, I've heard person after person after person, maybe you could echo this, I don't ever want to go through that again. But I learned so much about myself and so much about my faith. There is something that defies explanation in what you're looking at in Acts right now. And that is that when we are pressed down and when Paul had these experiences and God lifts him up, Paul says, I don't have to be afraid because wherever I go, God is going to be with me. Now, I heard something about ISIS the other day. I've been kind of tracking what's going on. And um, elements that are aligned with ISIS in Libya beheaded 15 Christian people this week. And CNN did a marvelous piece about going into the, the, the town, the little village where these people were at. And I'm just like channel surfing, just kind of see who gives me the best stuff. And that really caught my attention. And so they went into this Coptic Christian town and they started interviewing people. And what came out of that was this, quote, you can be proud of your sons because when they were in their most dire moment and they were going to be killed, they were on their knees praising Jesus. And they died with praise on their lips. This is like CNN. This is like, who would have ever thought CNN would actually report that? It's amazing. When you are smashed, God will raise you. And he may raise you so that you can be strong in the faith in your most dire moments. Along this lines too, what I've seen is that when people are struggling with an illness, and I don't know if any of you are doing that in here, but you may be able to give testimony of this. God empowers people who have chronic illnesses in ways that he does not empower people who don't. It's really pretty fascinating. And one of the greatest joys that I have as a person, because my mom died from cancer and I got to watch this going on, is that I'm not afraid of illnesses that people have. Because what happens is, is that sometimes we disconnect from people who are struggling. But what God does is he comes into the life of that believer and often recreates them in the midst of their illness. And they can become magnificent. Had a lady friend, her name was Mary Susan Llewellyn. She would probably not mind me telling you, sorry, I got to do her funeral. She was one of my colleagues at Cookson Hills a number of years ago. And she would be a walking porcupine, if, I, if you know what I mean. She was um, irritable and sour and unhappy. She was a career single who wanted to get married and wanted to be a mom, and she wasn't able to do any of that at all. 
And so we sort of adopted her into our family and she struggled when we started to have kids and she felt left out of that process, but we were able to work through that. She was diagnosed with cancer above and below the diaphragm. And I, she asked me, because we sort of made her our family, to go to the, ho- to, to the doctor's office with her. And I remember sitting there, and she was just sitting right over here, and the doctor said, you have six weeks to live. And she started to cry. I mean, who, who can sustain with that? And they left us alone, and we kind of talked about it. We went to see her sister so she could tell her sister later that week. And on our way back, she was laying down in the back of the seat, And I said to her, Mary Susan, I want you to know that God often comes into people's lives in most dire circumstances and creates something amazing for them. And I think he will do that for you. She had seen it in somebody else. I said, I think that you will be crowned with grace and love and joy. And this little teeny voice in the back seat said, I hope so. And then it was silent for a really long time. In two days, Mary Susan Llewellyn became the magnificent woman that she always wanted to be. And from that point of time until the day that she got to see Jesus, people flocked to see her for the first time in her life. Children played around her. People would come and see her and they said, where, and they would talk to me, where has this woman been hiding? I said, God has healed her in her most dire moments so that she could be the magnificent child of God that he always wanted her to be. Why now? I don't know, but let's just enjoy it. That's the book of Acts. In our most dire moments, God will create something amazing. We do not have to be afraid. I don't know about you, but there's a lot that we could be afraid about in our country and in our world. And God says, no matter what happens to you, even if it is extremely difficult, if you will follow me and believe in me, I'm gonna make something magnificent come out of this. This is why the church grows on the blood of the martyrs. This is why people who get horrible diagnoses can flourish. This is why you and I can be really good friends with people who have chronic illnesses. This is why God meets you in your moment of need in manna and says, I'll give you what you need. Mary Susan needed a life makeover. That was her manna. And her manna lasted two weeks longer. She lived eight weeks. That was it. And she was amazing. I wanted her to be my best friend. It was incredible what happened to her. And what you're looking at in Acts is God's ability here to do this. And so when you're looking at this 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 29, what you're looking at is this crushing and pressing and God picking up Paul and turning him loose. He wasn't afraid of anything. God was able to work with him through his thorn in the flesh and make life really amazing. And so one of the things I want you to think about devotionally is this. When you feel pressed down and you feel suffocating or you feel stress in some way because this is one of the big issues of our culture, what, can, what is God teaching you and how can you flourish? Ask him, how can I flourish? Make me flourish. Help me. And if you would be so bold, You could say, give me a Mary Susan experience. Recreate something in me that shines when I really should not shine. Give it to me so that I can have this magnificence in my life rather than be depressed or forlorn or anxious in some way so that I can have this amazing experience. Um, Paul's trial is coming up next. Um, He... um, 
was sent on, well, he went to Jerusalem, and while he was there, he wanted to present the gospel. He went into the court of the Gentiles, and he was accused of bringing in um, inappropriate people into the court of the Jews, um, where he was then arrested and put on trial. Here's what I want you to know. If you want to serve Jesus and somebody is against you, please don't be surprised that they lie about you. We live in a world where that happens, so please don't be surprised if there are lies about you. Uh, what you want to do is recognize that God will help you in that moment to really shine and do the right kinds of things. But you'll notice that there are some blanks underneath this, um, underneath Paul's trial. Let me find them here. They're actually on the top of the next page. Three blanks. The first one is Felix. The first name is Felix, just so you know the cast of characters. Felix is the Roman governor of Palestine who hoped Paul would offer him a bribe. So Felix kept him in jail longer because he wanted money and he was greedy. And Paul traveled around and he figured that Paul being a leader would have money. And so if he just kind of kept him in house arrest or kept him um, in jail, that Paul would eventually bribe himself out of that situation. Number two is Festus. Festus, F-E-S-T-U-S. Festus, as in uncle Festus. The new Roman governor who asked Paul to go to Jerusalem for trial. Festus came and he wanted to help solve the problem and get involved with Paul and try to make it a little bit easier and um, Paul wouldn't budge. And then King Agrippa, King Agrippa, A-G-R-I-P-P-A, King Agrippa, A-G-R-I-P-P-A, the administrator of Judah under, uh, Judea under the Romans who heard Paul's defense with Festus. And what happened is that Paul, and this is what I want for you to think about, is be ready in your strategy to speak when given the opportunity. Sometimes we speak with our actions and just love up on somebody, and sometimes we speak with our words. But let me give you some things that you might want to say to somebody um, that can help kind of open the way. Number one is um, God is really interested in you. God is really interested in you. When you open your mouth to speak, if you're on trial, or somebody is saying, I don't, I don't even understand any of this, or I'm really angry with God. Say to them, God is interested in you. Here's why you say that. Within this world, we know that God loves everybody, right? But what people are wondering is, does God like me? Does God like me? I know he loves people, but I don't feel very lovable, and I don't feel very blessed. I don't feel like he's very interested in me. And what you say is to them, God is really interested in you. And secondly, is he wants to help you or redesign you so that you can be the way that he originally wanted you to be. Wants to redesign you so that you can be the way that he wanted you to be. Now, I don't understand everything about that. It's what I say to people in counseling, is that God wants to recreate in you what has been lost. And he will give to you more and more of the life that he wants for you to have. Now, I don't always understand why sometimes people change rapidly and some people change very slowly. But the point is, is that if I like you and I have a good relationship with you and I stay with you, that is, I don't change my relationship with you based upon how you're doing things, you will tend to believe that God is up to something really incredible in your life because I'm staying with you. I'm treating you well. I'm interested in you. And I become a representative of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is what being an ambassador of God is like. 
Remember when I talked with you about Christ on the cross where he took on everything and we hand back friendship. This is what it's talking about. This is what the early church did. They took it on and they handed back friendship. They said, I'm not gonna change the way that I'm gonna treat you. I'm still gonna love the socks off of you even when you throw me into the lion's den in, in the Roman Colosseum. Paul said, I'll even tell you the truth always. I will always tell you the truth and I will treat you with dignity and kindness, Felix and King Agrippa, because I want you to consider becoming a Christian. I will treat you well. And what happened was, is that they almost believed. You're probably familiar with that. And what you're looking at now is if somebody is really interested, they could be really interested because of the way you treat them, which is really important. How you treat people opens the door in this particular way. So what's so special about Acts chapter 21 through 28? Number one, the Jerusalem riot and Paul's arrest. The Jerusalem riot and Paul's arrest. The Jerusalem riot and Paul's arrest. What's going to happen now is that Paul is going to be taken um, into custody and he is going to be tried as we were talking about up ahead. And this is the account of that arrest and trial. Number two is the trial before Felix. Number one is the Jerusalem riot and Paul's arrest. Number two is the trial before Felix. And I would have you read this sometime in this chapter because you can hear Paul with his strategy, with what he wants to say about how much God really cares and is interested and loves people and how Paul is making this impassioned plea um, for Felix to be able to consider the claims of Christ. So you have number two is the trial before Felix. Number three is the trial before Festus. Paul is just kind of being moved around, the trial before Festus. Uncle Festus. And he's being moved around at this point. And um, what's going on now is that um, they're trying to determine what to do with Paul because the Jerusalem Jews would like to riot, kill Paul, and the situation is kind of getting itself out of hand. And then number four is the voyage to Rome. The voyage to Rome. Number three is the trial before Festus. Number four is the voyage to Rome. What's your strategy for the gospel? Paul wanted to go to big cities so that if people would come, there would be fingers. What bigger city was there than Rome? Where do you think Paul could be killed? In Rome. Where do you think it was the most dangerous for a Christian? Potentially in Rome. Because Christians were considered to be atheists. That is, that they didn't believe in the gods of the day. They only believed in one God, and because they didn't believe in the gods of the day, they were actually considered to be atheists and people to be... um, pushed away from society and thrown away. And Paul is saying, I want to take the gospel, hear this well, what's your strategy? I want to take the gospel to the heart of the empire. And then let's see what happens, shall we? How could Paul do that? Because he knew that no matter what happened to him, God would raise and work within him and help him as long as he was alive to do the right kinds of things. Do you pray for your customers? Do you pray for your coworkers? And I'm not saying out loud and be all crazy about it, but I mean like sick the Holy Spirit on them when they're not looking. (laughs) Do you pray for your family? There was a missionary that wrote, God very rarely gathers a harvest where his people have not sown. God very rarely gathers a harvest where his people have not sown. And the first way we sow the gospel is by prayer. 
Now, if all of us were to kind of gather, what's your strategy? And we were to blanket this region, we could probably pray geographically for this region. And if we could use my terminology, sick the Holy Spirit on Southwest Missouri and its surrounding areas. Imagine what could happen as the gospel had a revival here. And what I love about CCO is something's happened here and there are these fingers that move out. But imagine if there could be more fingers and imagine if there could be more people and imagine if there would be more individuals. God very rarely harvests where he has not sown, where we have not sown. And so one of the things that I want for you to think about is, is there a Rome in your life that you don't really want to go to, a center? And what I want you to do is start praying there. Is there a boss? Is there a family member? Is there a situation that you just want to sow the seed of the gospel and ask for God to do something with that and you could be very content praying because it might not be time to speak. Sometimes we ruin if we speak, right? Can I get an amen? You open your mouth and you get in trouble. People aren't ready. And so you sow and 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 you sow. And And if you can do that and not manipulate people, but just say, God, would you please bless so-and-so? Would you please draw attention to him? One of the greatest privileges that we have in the eldership is to sick the Holy Spirit on people. And when we ask for prayer requests and back there, that whole prayer station is really about asking for God to step up his work in the life of people so that people will be drawn to him. Not that we could manipulate people into the faith, but could you please sow some more in their lives so that when the seed sprouts, there's some good soil in that person. And you and I can pray that God in his mysterious ways can help to create good soil. That's gonna be really, really cool. Okay, on a side note, I can't resist this. Let me just tell you this. Um, Vines, I don't know if you know this, but the very best grapes in the entire world are grown in southern Italy. And in order to get the very best flavor out of those grapes for winemaking, you have to have the right composition of stones in the soil. There has to be enough hardship in the soil so that the roots can get the flavor of the soil, but also force itself to get down deep so that it can be a really good vine. There has to be the right number of obstacles. And so they test the soil for the right amount of stones. Hmm. Sounds a little backwards in the American life, isn't it? I'm not asking God to stone you or give you stones. What I am asking is for you to consider that those stones counted all joy My brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, James chapter one. Why? Because it forces you to go down deep and it matures you. Isn't that interesting? So I've stopped praying that God would give me an easy life and that God would help me to rely on him in whatever life he has chosen to give me. And sometimes that's hard. I've stopped asking that he would give me an easy life and help me to live the life that he has given me. And if I need more stones so that I can have good grapes, I want more stones. I don't pray about that, but that's my heart. And if I have too many stones, I want him to take some of those out because it's going to spoil my grapes. So I want you to ask yourself, in what you're facing, you can be magnificent like Mary Susan Llewellyn and flourish like an incredible person no matter what you're facing because you need stones to taste good. Isn't that interesting? which is really kind of cool. And the early church had that experience. So Paul is going to go to Rome and he's going to try to spread the gospel from there. Um, And we're going to conclude with the book of Acts. And it says here that um, what happened to Paul 
Acts ends before Paul goes to trial. Tradition tells us that he was acquitted, continued his missionary work by going to Spain. Later during the reign of Nero, again, Paul was arrested. This time the apostle, like Peter, was put to death in Rome. And then this is in this area. I don't think you guys have this statement. It says, but the gospel message he had carried throughout the Roman Empire had taken root. Just a few centuries later, Justin Martyr, an early Christian father, would write that in Africa, Christians were all but the majority in every city. Christianity had taken root. It had worked its way down and was able to really flourish. So here's my question for you as we kind of close the book of Acts, and you can go home and read all of this, is what's your strategy? What are you doing with the stones that you have? Will you ask for the Lord to do something pretty amazing in your life? And will you not be discouraged? Because as God works and and you feel pressure, he's realigning things inside of you so that he can send you places where you can make a big difference. And while you don't want an experience, and you get through that experience, you can see his handiwork in it. And I think one of the values of being a church like us is we need to link our arms together and make sure that we leave no Christian behind. Not in discouragement, not in despair, not like my friend Mary Susan who got information that was so overwhelming, she had to be carried before she could walk again. And we carry each other, and we help them. And the early church, under great adversity, was able to have all of that mingled together and be a tremendous witness because the truth of God is seen in the adversity of life. Truth of God is seen in the adversity of life. And it will come, and we want to have good grapes. want to have good fruit, fruit of the Spirit, if you will, that is full of the joy of the Lord and His work. And thus closes the book of Acts from the standpoint of God doing something amazing in a world that wanted to squelch it out. If you are afraid because of what's going on in the world, what I want you to do is go back to the book of Acts and know that God is not afraid. And that in every situation that you may find yourself, he will shine. And he will give you what you need in that moment so that you can be the kind of person that you need to be. And so we go through these experiences in part to get ready for the time that we live it out or we speak it out when it's time for us to be a witness. Um, The gospel letters in Romans and Galatians. um, The epistles are letters of correspondence that were written by Jesus' apostles, sometimes to churches and sometimes to individuals. There's 21 of them in the New Testament, and they're designed to instruct believers. And so you've got down here, actually on the next page, um, a listing of what the epistles are and the common themes, which I'll have you take a look at as you want to. But what happens now is that the church is moving, and when the church advances, darkness pushes back, and there's confusion about what to do. And so many of the epistles are actually one half, 50% theology, and 50% practical application. Romans is 50-50. Colossians is 50-50. Ephesians is 50-50. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, this is what the truth is. Here's how it can be lived out for you, which is why you have exhortation and statement after statement within the epistles to say, this is how you can live this way. It's actually possible, which is really cool. Here's the truth, and here's how it can come alive inside of you. So when you read through the epistles, read through it devotionally and say, God, make it so with me. Make it come alive in me in some way. I don't know how you're going to do it. Make it come alive so that I would be able to live a life that actually reflects your truth. 
Um, When we look at these very first blanks in Romans, God's gift of righteousness through grace, let me give you these blanks. The first one is who wrote Romans? Paul wrote Romans. Paul. What? He explained the Christian gospel. He explained the Christian gospel. In fact, this is probably the most organized treatise of the Christian gospel that we have. He explained the Christian gospel. Where was it written? It was written to Christians in Rome. There's already a church there. Isn't that amazing? Went there, established a church, fingers started moving out. It was written to the Christians in Rome. When was it written? About 57 AD. 57 AD. And why was it written? So they would understand grace and righteousness. Grace and righteousness. They would understand grace and righteousness. Let me give you those again. Who was it written? Who, who wrote it? Paul. Um, what, what was written in it is to explain, it explained the Christian gospel. Where was it written? To the Christians in Rome. When was it written? About AD 57. And why was it written? So they would understand grace and righteousness. Now let me just make a little commentary here because we're going to run out of time. Again, these, these are really cool things. You and I tend to go back and think that we can earn God's favor. We think that we can earn God's favor. And Romans comes on the scene that says, your faith in Jesus Christ makes you most favored person. You need to remember that. It makes you, we are all equally most favored person. And I base that off of, you know, the most favored trade status of America. You know, we have fewer tariffs and everything is really great. And you have most favored person status. And what is so incredible is that over and over and over again, what Paul is saying and what Peter is saying and what James is saying is that this is actually true. You don't have to work for your salvation. You reflect salvation within your lifestyle. You don't work it, you reflect it. This is what's so incredibly important. So let me give you a little Peter Bucklinism here that I think a lot about. I'm concerned that we treat God like an idol. If I'll just say the right things, if I'll just go to church enough, if I'll just tithe enough money, if I'll just promise to do things enough, God will respond to me in a favorable way. Does that resonate with anybody in here? That's, that's what you do to idols, If I just give them the right kind of offering, the idol will smile upon me and the God will do something for me and I've earned the the privilege of the blessing. Here's what I want you to know. God knows that in a fallen world, we make everything about ourselves. Hear me well. We make everything about ourselves, even our faith. So if I don't come to church enough, I'll feel guilty that maybe God's gonna do something to me. Or if something bad happens to me and God's given me some more rocks, I think God is punishing me. No, God's bringing out fruit in you. Or if I have a dire physical experience that somehow, someway I've earned it because God is angry with me and that doesn't fit my idea. No, 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 no. You always, in a world that doesn't work the right way, you are always God's most favorite kid. All of us. Because Christ died so you could have that. And now what you're gonna see within all of the epistles is the fight that we would believe it. It's the fight that we'd believe it. And so my challenge to you right now is fight. Fight. Fight to hear what God says and rest. Rest. So that you can reflect the goodness of God and not wonder, does God like me? That's why, we, that's why I tell people he likes you. He likes you. He actually wants to spend time with you. 
And there's this part about a relationship that's important. And so this whole idea of righteous living that you take a look at in Romans is all about Paul's statement that there is nothing other than faith in Christ Jesus. Everything hinges on your faith. Your baptism hinges on your faith. Your giving hinges on your faith. Your forgiveness hinges on your faith. Your, your ability to love people hinges on your, everything is on your faith. Nothing saves you other than your faith, which is amazing. It is that simple, and we can't leave it alone. We cannot leave it alone because we don't think we deserve it because we don't. If you want to pay back God, you pay him back by being righteous. You pay him back by asking, do I speak or am I quiet? You pay him back by living a lifestyle that honors him and allows for him to shine in your life. And you ask yourself, what do you want me to do today? That's how you pay it back. Or if you will say, pay it forward in our vernacular. You pay it forward. And he will remake and reshape us to be the way that we were supposed to be. So when you take a look at what this all means, um, on the top of the next page, key passages of the book. Number one, all men, and this would be humanity, are aware of God. All men are aware of God. That's in the New Testament times, the idea of men was used for everybody, which most of you know. And so um, Mark has used this here. All men are aware of God. What this means is that you and I know that God exists. There is a book that I would like for you to consider getting if you are really interested in taking a look at atheism within our culture. It's called the Faith of the Fatherless by Witz, V-I-T-Z, Paul C. Witz. The Faith of the Fatherless is about atheism. It's a really fascinating read. It's actually one of my favorite books of all time. Faith of the Fatherless by Paul Witz, V-I-T-Z. And what Paul says is that atheism is abnormal and faith is normal, and takes us through the movers and shakers of our Western society and talks about the evolution of their atheism, from Freud to Hitler to um, the, the, um, the philosophers of the day, to Hegel and all those guys. And he begins to tell their story about how their anger at God caused them to turn their backs on God, and that that's abnormal. That really, working through our relationship with God is really critically important. And what happens then is that we end up spending our whole life fighting God. Now, I, I do want to make a statement. I don't mean it to be awfully inflammatory. But some of the grumpiest people in the entire world that I know are atheists. They're very unhappy. And yet they want to be free from God so that they can be happy and pursue their life and do really, really well. And what's happening is that the actual reverse is occurring to them. And they're really pretty miserable at times. I mean, many of them that I have known are frustrated. And they're mad at me for being a Christian and want me to stop being a Christian so that somehow that will validate their position. And what I want you to know is that as you look at this, God says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, you know that I am here. You know. And that's really what Paul is saying is that God has put his handiwork everywhere and you know that I am here. Number two, you do evil, you'll be judged. You'll be judged. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. You do evil, you'll be judged. Americans don't like this. 
we do not like this because we believe in individual rights and we should be able to do whatever we want to do that basically we think won't hurt somebody else or at least won't compromise things too badly. And democracy only works if we are self-restrained. It doesn't work if we're not. And so you're looking at this idea of if you do evil, you will be judged. And he says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And what we're looking at here is that God has a way of doing things. And he said, look, there is a way that I want you to understand the world. And there is a way that's going to hurt you. And if you choose a way that's going to hurt you, then there will be judgment with that because you're moving outside of what I want. And of course, the culture is very combative about what those things are. Um, number, th- number three, everyone knows right and wrong. Right and wrong. This is going with the big idea that there is a moral code that does exist within the culture. For example, this idea goes along with the, I- the, the lines of, I am married And if I decide that I want to have an affair with somebody else, my wife will not like that. She will consider that to be a wrong thing. We all know that. We understand that. I mean, we're not going to argue about that. If I kill you tonight, everybody's going to decide that that was the wrong thing to do. There is a deep moral code that seems to exist within the culture. And what Paul is going to say is that even if you don't know Jesus, there is a moral code and you can't even keep the moral code. You can't even keep it if you don't know Jesus. And everyone is guilty because our own conscience condemns us. You lie and you know that you shouldn't lie. You steal and you know that you shouldn't steal. You murder and you know that you shouldn't murder. You know that you should not be doing these things, yet you do them anyway and you become hardened of heart. And what what Paul is saying is everybody knows right from wrong. And then you've got number four down here. God's solution is Jesus Christ's righteousness applied to our faith. This is what is incredible. Jesus Christ's righteousness applied to our faith. Jesus Christ's righteousness applied to our faith. Jesus on the cross, remember from last week, God had to treat him horribly to take out his wrath. Lent starts today. If you come from that background, this is the beginning of the Easter season. This is the day of repentance. This is the day to to begin walking in humility for 40 days as Jesus did in the wilderness. And what God did was that he so poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross so you don't have to go there. You don't have to have that wrath, which is why you're the most favored person status. You might feel wrath some throughout your life and you might be disciplined some without your life, but God withholds the full measure of his wrath until the very end. And what you and I get to do is get to have Jesus's righteousness given to us. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. Why do we get it? Because somebody's crazy about us. Why can my kids act horribly and I will overlook it? Because I'm crazy about them. That's why. I'm crazy about them. I don't want them to suffer. I don't. I'll take it on myself. I don't want them to have that happen. I'm crazy about them. And God is crazy about you. And Jesus is the indicator that he is crazy about you. And that's what Romans is all about, is Jesus is here, and you will be righteous and get his righteousness if you will embrace him and say, that's what I want. And he will remake you from the inside out, which is pretty crazy. If you tried the prayer last week that I talked with you about, about going out and confessing and praying, you can begin to feel that remake inside of your life. 
He just gets in there and he starts moving stuff around and cleaning you up in some way. And you feel a lot better with that. So Jesus Christ's righteousness is applied to our own faith. We have just a few minutes left because I'm dilly-dallying. So let's go on to Galatians because there's a couple of points I want to close with and not keep you too long. Um, Galatians, the law or the spirit? Now, remember what I said about um, kind of treating God like an idol or, you know, having to have laws or regulations that we just can't leave things alone. Galatians was the first epistle written to deal with the legalism of the Judaizers, the people who said you have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. And so this is the first um, book out of the block that is going to deal with that. So um, the idea of, let's see what I got here. What? I'm sorry, who? Paul wrote this letter. Let's see what I got here. Who, Paul wrote the letter. And what is the letter about? Um, well, he wrote, wrote this letter. Oh, to Christians in the province of Galatia. To t- oh, let me just give it to you this. I, I, actually, Mark didn't put it on here. Wrote it to talk about freedom in Christ. What, what is going on um, about, Paul wrote this letter about freedom in Christ. Where? To the Christians in the province of Galatia. It's like a state. It's like the state of Missouri. So if there was a book, it would be Missouri. Missourians instead of Galatians. So it's kind of a region. To Christians in the province of Galatia. When? About 49 AD. And why did he write this book? Is to show us that we are free from the demands of the Old Testament law. We are free from the demands of the Old Testament law. And we can live in the freedom of righteousness in Christ. Free from the demands of the Old Testament law. Free to live in righteousness with Christ. Judaizers attacked Paul on three grounds. Let me give you these three grounds in the next page. Attacked Paul on these three grounds. Number one, Paul is not really an apostle. Paul is not really an apostle. They're attacking his credibility to say, you don't have a right to talk to us about this. Paul is not really an apostle. So when you read through that, Paul's going to defend his apostleship. And he actually talks about his conversion experience and about going off for three years and having Jesus teach him, which is really kind of weird. It's really kind of cool. If you've not ever read that, read through that in Galatians, the first couple chapters. The first one is Paul is not really an apostle. Number two, God authored the law. God authored the law. And Paul shouldn't teach that it is set aside. What the Judaizers are saying. God authored the law. Paul should not teach that it's been set aside. God wrote it. God said it. That settles it for me. You've probably heard that about some things that we have gone through. But the Jews were saying that. So God authored the law and Paul should not teach that it has been set aside. And number three, Paul's teaching is a license to sin. Oh, let's talk about the danger of grace. For like two minutes. Paul's teaching is a license to sin. For the Old Testament Jew to obey the Torah was the epitome of their life. They had to obey it. And Jesus came along and he said, I am the fulfillment of the law. You need to obey me instead of obeying the law. And I'm going to take the law and I'm going to show you its intention and I'm going to fulfill it because it points to me. And the Judaizers who didn't believe that uh, were persecuting Paul. Of course, they killed Jesus because he was 
talking about those things. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the law. And the person of the Holy Spirit becomes your governor, your own governor. So that you're not free to do whatever you want to do because you're in a love relationship. You're in a relationship of honor and respect. And Mark has talked about this from the stage where he says, you know, and I'll just talk about it with this. There are certain things that my wife does not like. And they are particular to my wife, Vanna. Her name is Vanna. Pick me a letter. As in, um, yeah, it's really kind of fun. Vanna. V-A-N-A. Pick me a letter. And um, there are things that she does not like. And one of the things that she doesn't like is a lazy husband who doesn't help at home. And she'll let me know that she doesn't like that. And I don't really mind helping. I grew up in a family of four sons. And so we didn't have any daughters. And my mom just sort of said, you will help us out. So we kind of work out really well. But there are times that I've had a rough day. And I don't really just like snap two and hop two. And she doesn't particularly like that. And if I ask her, hey, what's wrong? You know that she's going to say that famous word that starts with the letter N. Nothing. And we all know that she's lying through her ever-loving teeth. Because what she wants is for me to respond to her because I care about her, not respond to her because I'm angry with her. She wants me to know her well enough that I will honor her and interact with her because I have come to know her and that I will just adapt myself in certain ways to her that show that I love her and I care about her. And I have taken her on the inside of me and made her a part of me. She's not out there somewhere. She's not somebody else's wife. She did not mother other people's children. She is my wife, and she has mothered my children. And I have brought her in, and I have aligned myself with her because I care about her. What she doesn't like, I will honor. Do I have to not like the same thing? Do I have to understand it? No. Who can understand the mind of a woman? Let's just be honest. And I don't mean that meanly. Who can understand, what lady can understand the mind of a man? completely. You can't do the same thing either. But what you can do is honor that. And you can say, I don't really get it, but I love you. Here's what I want you to know. You don't have to understand God to obey him. You just have to love him. You don't have to understand why he said not to do something or why he said to do something. You just have to love him. And Galatians chapter 5 is all about that. How do you love God? By walking in the Spirit. You demystify it. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or doing crazy stuff. I'm talking about asking for daily manna. I'm asking for courage to do the right thing. I'm asking for you to teach me. Bring me. I, I want, I'm sorry, I want you to come into me so that I adapt myself to you. That's what Christianity is about. That's why we don't need a law. Is because God himself becomes our law. The, the person of the Holy Spirit teaches us and I pursue him and I bring him into me and I will say, because this is important to you, it is important to me. Do I understand it fully? Absolutely not. I do the same thing with my kids. I have a daughter that loves sarcasm and a son who hates it. So I'm sarcastic with my daughter and I'm not with my son because my son thinks I don't like him and my daughter thinks I don't like her when, I don't, when I'm not sarcastic to her and my son thinks that I hate him when I'm sarcastic to him. And then I have one on the side that's keeping track of all of that stuff. And I'm looking at this going, I can't win with this. But I have to bring my children into me and adapt myself to them. It's what good parenting is all about, okay? Christianity is based on that. Romans chapter eight says you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. You're not controlled by the law. You're not controlled by fear. 
you are controlled by the person of God himself. So Acts, I'm sorry, so Galatians is all about that. So let's finish this up and I'll let you guys go. Um, The life of a disciple, number one, is a life of choices. A life of choices. I want to be honest with you about why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian in part because of this right here. It is a life of choices. God has not asked me to put my brain on the shelf. He has asked me to let him redeem my brain so that I can choose rightly. And I can choose how to love you based upon your need, not based upon a commandment that says I must love you in a particular way. Because I might love you in error. And so he's asked me, let me change your mind. Let me redeem your mind. Let me transform your mind so that you can be a big enough person and a healthy enough person so that you can bring people into you and you can adapt to them and love them and care about them. And that is a sign of Christian maturity. To be adaptable and changeable and moldable within love, within honor, with, within respect, within the brotherhood of men, within the sisterhood of women, that we really care about each other and we are adaptable and moldable within how to really care for each other. And the life of a disciple is a life of decision-making. And so you can see this. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. And every single day, I have to live a day of humility and repentance. Or Peter Buckland will show up and he's not nearly as mature and as good as the redeemed Peter. He's not nearly so good. And my battle is not with you. My battle is in myself. It can be a battle between you and me if I let it be. But my battle is in myself. You're not my enemy. I'm not my enemy. But sin in me is my enemy. Sin in me. And I need to be big enough to be able to love you, mature enough to be able to love you and to have that choice. And so every day I need to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. Number two, being led by the Spirit of God is freeing. Is freeing. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Freeing. Remember that the Holy Spirit becomes your governor. The relationship that you have by taking God inside of you and pursuing him and getting to know him actually becomes your governor and not a law. This is why we don't need the law. Number three, we know and can see the differences. We know and can see the differences. Paul writes, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And then he lists them all out. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Number three again says, we know and can see the difference. Here's my last idea for you today. Mahatma Gandhi said, be the difference. Be the difference. He's a man who's greatly respected. He actually said that the reason that he didn't want to become a Christian is because he saw how Christians treated each other. This is really pretty sad. And what Paul is saying is this, the Holy Spirit in you will be the difference that everybody will see. Because the Holy Spirit in you will work to, let's go back to the grapes, to produce the fruit will produce great love, will produce great joy, will produce great patience. And if you're needing the development of the fruit of the Spirit, ask for the person of the Holy Spirit to grow an influence in your life. 
to grow in influence. I don't know how that happens. And it happens over time for most of us. But ask for the Holy Spirit to grow in influence so that no matter what your rocks are, God can create the right kind of fruit. No matter how pressed down you are, that when you leak out, you leak out Jesus Christ. You don't leak out yourself in your own frustration and anger. That you approach the world with faith and say, Lord, what is it that, that I need to learn about this situation? How can I rest in the arms of my brothers and sisters? How can I move forward in the world and have an axe-like experience when I'm pressed down, something amazing can happen? How can I hold on to righteousness because you love me and you care about me and I love you and I care about you? And how can that really be a part of my life so that I can be this person that lives a joy? joyful experience. How can I live in freedom so that every single day, whether I live it perfectly or not, I can ask for your forgiveness, I can be washed clean, and I can start all over again. And I can grow to be the person that you want me to be. What is it that God is saying to you tonight in these marvelous books, in this amazing truth of Jesus Christ? Do not leave tonight before you decide what you want to take and ask for him to grow in your life. Pick something and ask him to keep changing and growing and developing you from the inside out so that you will learn to speak when you need to speak. You'll learn to be silent when you need to be silent. But that of all things, you will take him in and let him change you so that he is your law. He is your righteousness. He is your hope. He is your joy. No matter what happens to you, you will thrive. Such an amazing faith, Christianity. I wish everybody could see it. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much that you have created this amazing experience for us. And we bow before you and ask that Christ Church of Ornogo and other churches that believe in your word will be empowered by your spirit to make it come alive. Lord, we pray for people who, I pray for the people who are here as well as um, all the Christians in this area that you will move in their lives to draw them to you and that for those that are here, you will help them take the truth and that you will make it come alive in their lives. Teach them to walk by faith. Teach them that you love them. Teach them to take you in so that you change them so that they can become the man or the woman that you originally designed them to be. Don't let them stop. Don't let them believe lies. But allow for them, Lord, to flourish so that no matter where they go, they don't have to be afraid. No matter what happens to them, they will have the body to help them until they can stand again. And that all together, Lord, we will make a difference because you are the difference in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.